Welcome to the podcast, Eavesdropping on Arthurians, a podcast that records some of the world's top Arthurians chatting about Arthurian texts. Imagine you're at an Arthurian conference, and after a day of listening to papers on all things Arthurian, you've all gone to the pub. So, order a pint of ale, pull up a stool, and settle in to listen to two scholars talk about their favorite books. I'm chatting today with Dr. Michael Toomey. Michael is Emeritus Charles A. Dana Professor at Ithaca College. He has published widely on Arthurian literature in general, and Sir Gawain and the Green Knight in particular. You can also shadow Michael as he follows in the footsteps of Gawain. Just Google Travels with Sir Gawain and the website will come up. All right, so hello, Michael. Welcome to this podcast. Hello, Kathy. Um, so let's just start. Can you give us the context for Sir Gawain and the Green Knight? So we don't know the author's name, but we figured out a little bit about him. So could you tell us about that? Well, we presume that it's him. Yeah, <laughs> I guess it could be a her, right? It could be a her. That's right. Especially given the uh, the female bias in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. But but anyway, we assume it's a him. Okay. Um, and because the poet didn't sign his name, which is actually pretty common, Many medieval poets didn't do that. Um, we have to we have to reconstruct who this person might have been. So here's what we go on. The first thing is that um, the language of a poem puts it to an area that's at the intersection of Cheshire, Staffordshire, and Derbyshire in northwestern England in the Northwest Midlands dialect of of English of Middle English. Probably this person was working around the middle of the 14th century, whereas the scribe was probably copying at the end of the 14th century. We also know that that the Gawain poet uh, had a had a language that provide that had vocabulary from three different linguistic sources. So there are words from English, of course, and there are lots of words from French, but there are also words that would have come to him from Norse. But then we come to the question of not just the poet's language, but then what about the poet's culture? Right. And so here we have a poet. Um, if, if if we assume that all four poems in the manuscript were written by the same person, then this person was pretty well acquainted with the ecclesiastical culture and, and religion of the medieval church. And you can see that in Pearl, Patience, and Cleanness. But then in Gawain, you really get a, a good window into the um, courtly and chivalric culture of secular England. And so the poet would have been really well acquainted with that too. So the question is, well, what kind of a person would know all of these things? Right. Um, and the the answer would be uh, someone in, with um, minor clerical orders, like a canon, but possibly a priest. And okay. that priest would then have to have an employer. So the last thing uh, to quickly put into this picture is that uh, King Richard II was the Earl of Chester, as well as, as the King of England. Richard liked Chester. He spent vacations up there. He had uh, homes up there. And towards the end of his reign, he even had a private army that was composed of, of archers from Chester. Huh. So, so someone connected to the royal household uh, living up there uh, is a likely candidate uh, for the poet, for the going poet. Great. 
That's interesting. And so it's far from Chaucer's London English, yes. but it would be quite a, a cultivated and cultured court right. up near Chester. Right, exactly. Um, what I find interesting is that this person chose to write in the local dialect rather than to write in London English. Yeah, I mean, if it, he was writing for Richard, would Richard have even understood this? Well, pres well, we'd like to think he would, right. but we really can't be sure just how well he would have understood it. We hmm. just don't know. Um, but one thing we do know is that by choosing to write in this dialect, he virtually guaranteed his own obscurity. Right. Yeah, because well, he, didn't, he wouldn't know that that was the, the, I mean, that the London dialect was going to become the, the dialect of English, but... I guess he couldn't have known, but... I mean, he should have been aware that, that London was the center for literary out, uh, activity. And um, there wasn't a whole lot going on outside of London, but I, apparently that wasn't an issue. Right. Interesting. Well, maybe he was making some sort of political or cultural statement, like people writing in Black English today or something. You know, that's a really interesting hypothesis. Yeah. Okay, so the dialect comes from this area of England um, and it's it's far harder for us to understand but part of the problem as well is that it's alliterative form and so that requires the use of obscure words and lots of synonyms to fit right. with the alliteration yeah it does force you into some strange corners yeah yeah so that that's the other reason that I think we need to read it in a parallel translation, whereas Chaucer we can kind of crash through if you haven't done Middle English before. Right. And of course, if you've read enough Chaucer, you know that Chaucer made fun of this style. Yes. Right. And I think <laughs> it's the, rum ram rum. I can now rim ram roof like a northern man. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So there's snobbery even back then, or maybe especially back then. Uh, especially. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so okay. I want to talk. I yep. want to talk about your work in particular on Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Um, you've done some work on eco-criticism of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and maybe this is um, obvious because it's called the Green Knight, but um, can you talk a bit about that and how, and you've also shown that the landscape maps pretty closely on this area of the Peak District. So so can you talk a bit about that and, you, and um, maybe, you know, what part we're talking about specifically? You'd have to have a map in front of you, but if you know where the Peak District is, yeah. uh, to the east of Chester, to the west of Derby, then, uh, you know, it's a pretty remote area even now. Yeah. When Ralph Elliot started looking into the language of the poem, he discovered that the landscape terminology that we find here is essentially unique to that area in the Peak District. So, you know, you, ha you have a fictional story about Sir Gawain and his encounter with this magical green knight, but it's set in a very realistic landscape where the, um, the names for landscape features are really found only here in this part of England. And that's also one of the reasons we can locate the poem to that part of England, too. Okay. So, that, I mean, that's, that's kind of an important thing. But then from that follows a whole lot of other discoveries about the poem, what Eliot did was to try to fit, find what would be the specific area where you could find all of these words. So he goes through the poem and he finds words like rocheris, which means rocky hills, knara, which means crag, knot, which is a mound, or a flosh, which is a swamp. Um, and he finds them all around 
a place called Swithamley Park or Swithamley Grange, depending okay. on which map you're using. Swithamley happens to be a place where, uh, where Richard II, as the Earl of Chester, had a manor. Right. So he spent time there. Huh. And if you stand on the ground of Swithamley, which I've done kind of semi-legally <laughs> because it's private property and you're not supposed to be there. But if you stand there and you look out, you can see um, the Rosharis, the Rocky Hills. It's actually a landmark. It's a, it's this big outcropping of rock huh. uh, that is just, you know, two miles from there. So, and then there are places that are called Carrara and Clot and Flosh. So you're, you're there. That's the place. Um, right. And so once you start thinking about where you are, then you have to wonder, what can you learn about this place and the poets thinking about this place from reading Sir Gawain and the Green Knight? And okay. so that's kind of where I got started. I started thinking about the eco-critical implications of this particular place. Um, it has to do with where Gawain, what Gawain thinks about what he's looking at, and then what, what Bertilac is doing with the land, and what this has to do with Gawain's adventure. In the medieval period, there is a very specific meaning of the word forest. Right. And it's not what we mean by forest as a place covered by trees at all. Nope. Well, our, we are laboring under the, um, the ideologies of the Romantic period, which, okay. which saw forests as these wonderful natural places that were free from human interference. And so if, if you're in the 14th century, you really have two def different ideas of what the forest is. Um, there's the forest of adventure, which is essentially a literary convention. Okay. And that's the ancient forest. Um, it's, it's huge. It's, it's wild. It, it's a place of danger. It's where you can encounter wild animals. You can encounter, uh, challenges from strange knights and so on. And, and that's the, the forest that you find in the romances of Chrétien de Troyes, for example. And, right. and, and in a lot of romances. I and think. in a lot of romances, right. But that is, um, that's an idea of the forest that really comes out of literature and it reflects an understanding that this is how the forest once was, back in the time of King Arthur, maybe. And if you're a medieval person, you put him back in the 6th century someplace. So this is right. a long time ago. But it's if a nostalgic idea. Yeah. So, but, if, but the forest, in the other sense, um, is a very specific legal concept, which the English inherited from the French. In fact, forest is a French word. Right. So it, it came over to England um, with the Norman Conquest, although there are some pretty good signs that the English were beginning to have forests like this before the conquest. But, but in this uh, 14th century concept of forest, um, there are no longer any ancient forests in England by the time Sir Gawain is written. Every inch of land in England was owned by somebody it right. was used, it was cultivated, it was harvested. And so that, that concept of the forest is um, a private property that is for the use of the owner. And the owner is going to be somebody who's either royal or at least noble. And it doesn't even have to have trees. Right. Uh, it's just an area that is used by that person and uh, his legal um, um, agents. Different laws would apply in that part. Yeah, yeah. As opposed, so you could, I, I guess, technically kill a deer somewhere else in England, but if you killed it in the forest, in a, in a forest, you'd get in trouble. 
Oh, and in fact, you probably wouldn't find too many deer outside of the forests. But right. I guess but, not. Yeah, you would be in trouble. But not just yeah. a deer, anything. You know, anything. For example, if you cut a tree down, there's a fine right. for that. If you um, tear up the shrubbery, there's a fine for that. If wow. you plant a farm there or a garden, there's a fine for that. It's hmm. as if when you walk through these royal forests in, the, in 14th century England, it's as if everything has a price tag on it <laughs> because that's what it's for. And right. not only that, let's suppose, suppose you wanted to make glass. You would do that in the forest with a license. If you wanted to have a mine, you would have the mine in the forest with a license. Um, if you wanted to make charcoal, same thing. So all of these forest industries were licensed and taxes were taken. If you wanted to build a ship, you would have to get the ship, the tree from the, for the ship from the forest. So you would have to pay the owner for the wood and then you could, you could mill it and make your ship. <laughs> so the, you're, you argue in that article that the the parkland around the castle that um, Gawain comes to isn't really a wilderness in no. our way, you know, the Canadian or American yeah. wilderness. No, not it's at really all. It's really one of these forests. Yeah. Well, when Gawain comes across it, um, the, he notices that there are palings around the castle. Um, and that's one of the first indications that this is a park. So a park, a park is an, a special enclosed area within a forest, and it's essentially it's a deer farm. It's where right. you you control the number of deer so that you can have easy hunting, and and he doesn't actually get to see the deer park, right? Because Bertilac keeps him in the house the whole time, um, right. and subjects him to his wife's temptation. So Bertilac, yes, uh, Bertilac, Bertilac's wife, right? Keeps yeah. So Gawain never gets to see the the park. Um, he just gets to see the the palings around it and the outside of it, and that's all he knows about it. Right. So, what he does get to see, though, is the the trail on the way to the Green Chapel, which uh, the poet tells us is pretty wild. It's a lot like the the forest that Gawain found himself in before he came to the castle, which was a pretty miserable place. You know, it's overgrown with hawthorns and other kinds of of undergrowth, and um, it's trackless and so on and the guide that right the going the guide that Bertilac gives him makes clear that this is a really nasty place and you don't want to be here so by the way i'm out of here now goodbye <laughs> and this would be the true wilderness or, or the closest yeah. thing you would find in, in england rather than kind of the legal forest yeah yeah it would be owned by somebody but it wasn't maintained Right. the way that a park was, so that um, it was allowed to go wild. So you've actually gone, you've actually traveled yeah. in that part of England and Wales with yeah. other Arthurians. Do you want to yeah. tell me about that trip? Yeah, so in 2002, at the International Arthurian Society Conference in Bangor, um, I, I led a one-day trip where we reconstructed or something like that, Gawain's journey. We went First, we went from Bangor to the Holy Head, or what is I think is probably the Holy Head, which is the chapel at Holy Well for uh, St. Winifred, who, who was beheaded and whose head was put back on. So I thought, <laughs> and many people think this is a pretty appropriate place for Gawain to stop on his way. Yes, from, absolutely. Right. And from there, uh, we went into the Peak District and we went to a place called Wetton Mill, which is a pretty good candidate for the Green Chapel. It's far enough away from from Swithamley Park. It's... Um, it looks pretty much like the description that we get in the poem. It even has a small river running past it, which the poet says is there. And 
across the hill from it, as you, if you stand there, you look across the hill, there's a place called Thor's Cave. And um, it's the perfect spot for the Green Knight to be grinding his axe before he comes to meet Gawain. So um, all of that just kind of fits pretty well. And yeah. um, we got there at 8.30 in the evening on a summer night, just as the tea room was closing up. Oh, no. And we had to plead with the owner to please let us go up to see the cave, which we did. And, of course, you know, we found uh, bottles and chewing gum wrappers and cigarette oh. packages all over the place. It was just kind of a place where local kids go to smoke dope. Or, um, but it was it was just really great to see it. It's fascinating to think that it might have been that type of place in the 14th century, and this local kid would have gone up yeah. there. And then when he <laughs> yeah. grew up, he wrote this great poem and had all these, you know, fantasy images from his childhood. Indeed, indeed. And there's <laughs> something, you know, there's other good stuff about this trip. Uh, we got to Swithinley, and um, it's now surrounded by a pretty high brick wall. So we're walking around it, and then we came to a house in the wall. And um, the owner came out and greeted us, and we told the owner what we, who we were and what we wanted. And so she said, well, you know, I really shouldn't do this, but why don't you just come through my house and out the back door, and you'll be right there on the grounds, and just don't stay too long and then come back out. So we did, and so there we are, standing right in the middle of Swithamley Park. Wow. And uh, she became kind of loquacious, and she said, now, if you look down there... There's the manor house, the current manor house. It was only built in the 19th century, so it's not really that old anymore. But right. she said, but there's something really neat about that place. And we said, well, what was it? She said, the Beatles used to own it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that really made it magical. Yes. Uh, so, <laughs> Several was, centuries after what you thought she right. was or what you were interested in. Right. And then, yeah, so it was, it was just great. Um, so I went back a second time. Uh, in 2011, uh, while I was in Bristol for the Arthurian Society there. And when I got there, I, I found that the manor house was for sale. Oh. Um, but I couldn't afford it. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't try to get a bunch of Arthurians together to see if everybody could chip in a thousand pounds or something? Yeah. Well, try like try herding cats. It'd be easier. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then what would you do with it, eh? <laughs> right. What would I do with it? Turn it yeah. into a John Lennon museum. I guess so. <laughs> cool. So, yeah, let's get back to the book now. Um, yeah. I mean, you talk about the difference between the wilderness and the forest and so on. And I've always argued that when Gawain is traveling through the wilderness, yeah, um, that's when he encounters all the usual romance adventures. So I'm going to read a little bit, and I'll read it in the modern English so okay. that everybody's sure to understand. But... He said, it says, many fells he climbed over in territory strange, far distant from his friends like an alien he rides. At every ford or river where the night crossed, he found an enemy facing him, unless he was in luck, and so ugly and fierce that he was forced to give fight. So many wonders beheld, befell him in the hills, it would be tedious to recount the least part of them. Sometimes he fights dragons and wolves as well, sometimes with wild men who dwelt among the crags, both with bulls and with bears, and at other times boars and ogres who chased him high, across the high fells. I don't think that other readers of Middle English romances or, or European romances would think that was tedious. <laughs> That's kind of what the classic adventure is but then 
it says for fighting him troubled him less than the rigorous winter when cold clear water fell from the clouds and froze before it could reach the faded earth half dead with the cold Gawain slept in his armor more nights than enough among bare rocks and so it's the weather and the landscape yeah. that he finds most difficult not all these classic killing of dragons adventures he, he thinks that's not even worth mentioning <laughs> well he's a hero after all so <laughs> these so. are the sorts of things he's supposed to be able to deal with but that's but that not shows... the weather like do heroes not have blankets i mean <laughs> well it's cold when you're dressed in iron I guess um, so. <laughs> <laughs> right i mean you know they didn't have winter coats they didn't have fleece and that sort of thing so um he's and the funny thing is that it's really cold here and it's snowy and all of this. And it's really cold and snowy at the green chapel when he gets right. there. But in between when Bertilak is hunting, there isn't a, there isn't a flake of snow on the ground. Interesting. Uh, so that it's kind of hard to know how to take this weather, but part of it, and this is what Jillian Rudd argues. And I think this is a, this is an interesting case that what Gowling experiences right now in this passage is actually a kind of um, psychological projection of his own anxieties. Hmm. Um, and because uh, as far as we know, the weather's not that bad. This is not the height of the little ice age. Certainly so, not by Canadian standards. Either. No, right. right. Not even by Ithaca standards. Right. So, so that's one possibility. And another possibility is simply that the poet is kind of clearing the deck of all of the standard uh, kinds of adventures that knights have in romances to, um, to, to prepare us for the real encounter that Gawain's going to have, which is much more, which is psychological, which is um, sexual, um, which spiritual. is right, spiritual, cultural. That's really where this um, story is taking us. So hmm. let's get all of this other stuff out of the way. And signal for the readers that this is going to be a different type of romance, maybe. Right, right. Very different type of romance. Um, and I think Gillian Rudd also points out that that this part, this this uh, stanza that you just read, takes place in countries unknown. That's what line 713 says. Right. Um, and he doesn't get to the forest until line 741, after he's been through all of that other stuff. Right. So the forest is deep it's wild there are high hills old oak trees hazels and hawthorns and a lot of really unhappy birds who were freezing up on the <laughs> branches you know and, yeah. and that and it's that it's that moment that he prays for some place to stay that night and then suddenly he looks up and there's the castle right. where was that <laughs> you know and yeah. so that I mean, it's just that that whole moment is one of these conventions that you find in um, places like the the um, the Mort Artoux of the French of the Vulgate cycle of French romances, where you'll be riding along through a forest and suddenly there's a castle there. And wait a second, didn't we just go through here yesterday and there was no castle here? Yeah. And there it is. The same thing happens in Cratian's Percival. Right. So that, that's a convention of of um, encountering the fairy. So right. th that's the sign. This is now the fairy world. Right. And yet he prays for it. So that's a really interesting. I know. I love it. Yeah. It's just a subversion of traditional Christian um, spirituality. Yeah. He prays to Mary, but he's answered by Morgan, so to speak. 
<laughs> well, that segues nicely into the next thing I was going to ask you about because yeah. um, Morgan, you also focus a lot on not so much in the eco-critical article, but in yeah. different writings that that Morgan is a really fascinating character in this poem. And I mean, I'm always fascinated by Morgan, but in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, she's really interesting. Yeah. And so I, you know, can you, let's go to the end of the poem now. And yeah. we've had all of these adventures between the two men, really. I mean, Lady Bertilak is there, but um, again, it's probably still like it's that kind of two sides of knighthood, the the or nobility maybe the hunting side and then the the courtesy side, yes. courtesy to ladies. Exactly. And the whole beheading game, I don't know, I think of it kind of like a macho pissing contest. Like like you know, little boys punch each other to see who can hit the hardest and not cry out or something. Right. Um, well look at Arthur. Right? Arthur won't eat until he hears of some challenge to his masculinity or yeah. some great adventure story comes his way and then he'll eat. It's as if he has to, he has to affirm his masculinity and then he'll have dinner. So <laughs> exactly. that, that kind of sets the tone for it. Well, um, and it's, I mean, the Green Knights characterize the, them as beardless children. There I know. There's something immature about Arthur's court. Oh, what an insult that must be. <laughs> you think about it. But here's a question for you then. Yeah. What's the title of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight? Ah, this is ah. probably editorial. It's Sir Gawain and the Green Knight in all the text, but what is it in the manuscript? I don't know that. There is no title in the manuscript. Oh. So why do we call it Sir Gawain and the Green Knight? Well, because those are the two main characters, presumably. Well, right, but it's been called that for so long that yeah. I think we've become blinded to uh, these other dimensions of the poem. We assume, because we go on the basis of modern um, literary, um, I guess, ideas of how literature is supposed to work yeah. that because a character is prominent in the narrative does a lot of talking does a lot of action that that somehow that the story is about that character right um but that's not necessarily so well, there we... are so, sorry, sorry there are so many hints all the way through that morgan is at work behind the scenes that we should be a little kinder to her i guess so we get to the end of it and suddenly it's like all of this, you know, macho masculine stuff right, right. Is, is because, so I'm reading at line 2460 that Morgan sent me to drive you demented with this marble to have terrified Guinevere and caused right. her to die with horror at the figure who spoke like a specter with his head in his hand before the high table. So mm -hmm. this is, I mean, maybe it's a pissing contest between women, but... Uh it's it's something Morgan has done to spite Guinevere. Right. And it's well, entirely between the two women. Um huh, exactly. And um now one of the things that happens in Arthurian literature is that uh once you have a a canon of characters and and plots to deal with, yeah. Then you can create new new stories and insert them into that canon. Right. Uh, and that's exactly what happened. You know, so, for example, um, once Geoffrey of Monmouth laid down the basic history of King Arthur, then other writers began to insert new narratives in the gaps in that Today narrative. Today we would call that fan fiction. You would call that fan fiction, but that's, that's very big in the world of, of King Arthur. Yeah. And so um, there are a couple of narratives that become canonical, and one of them is the Vulgate Cycle of French romances from the early 13th century. 
And in um, the first part of that, the romance of Lancelot, there's a, a whole sequence of events where Guinevere has a cousin named uh, Guillaumar, who becomes Guillemar in Marie de France's Lays, okay. or is has the same name. And um, this Guillemar has an affair with Morgan, huh. who's at, of course, living in Arthur's castle. And uh, this infuriates Guinevere, and she banishes Morgan. So she Morgan goes off into the wilderness, and she hooks up with Merlin, and they have an affair. But in the meantime, she learns all of Merlin's magic. And she spends the rest of the Vulgate cycle at the margins of the narrative, but always sort of coming back in to try to to do damage to King Arthur or to one of his knights, Lancelot right. especially. And then she comes back and fetches Arthur up to Avalon at the end. So um, I suspect that this is an allusion to that uh, to that story. Right, and this is what lies behind this plot. Right, and we're pretty sure that the Vulgate Cycle has a lot to do with the story of Gowan the Green Knight because the knights of the Round Table all have the names that they have in the Vulgate Cycle. They're all French. Right. And they're all from the Vulgate Cycle. And there are so many French words uh, in this story that, in fact, the um, the author uses French words as if they were English words, and sometimes it's hard to tell whether they are meant to be French or English because this is at a time when so many French words are being imported into English that we, we can't really tell whether they're being used as French or as English sometimes. So, for example, um, when Gawain first sees Morgan at Bertilac's castle, he doesn't recognize her. And, and that's also a convention of the character of Gawain. Uh, in other romances, he'll come across members of his family and not recognize them. I so, think that's a characteristic of a lot of knights. <laughs> right. Well, so it's one of his problems. Yeah. But when he finds her, he, he thinks of her as an ancienne. And right. an old lady, but it's a term of respect. She's an Aussie. it doesn't even register to him that when he has dinner with Bertilac and, and Court on Christmas morning, that the person sitting at the high seat is Morgan Le Fay, right. not Bertilac. It's not Bertilac's castle. It's hers. Right. Interesting. And I think you point out in your article that the there's a, a punctuation problem that editors have trouble with, right. but only because they were Victorians who assumed men had to own things, that the punctuation <laughs> problem disappears if we assume that Morgan owns the castle and so on. Another one of their assumptions was that, that the, if the text didn't make sense to them, they could, they could amend it at will. Yes. And so, you know, you have editors like uh, Sir Israel Galance, who was uh, edited a number of volumes for the Early English Text Society. You know, he, he amends this this poem all over the place. And so if you strip away all of that emendation and get back to what the manuscript says, um, then things start to get interesting. So, um, yeah, you mentioned this in your questions, you know, whether money has token, men or magic is less clear. I agree. It's less clear. But no matter how you construe this passage, that particular half line is not going to make a lot of sense. So this is that line 2447 or 2448? Um, thereabouts, yeah. 2448, okay. I think, yeah. So I would go, I would say this in translation, it would be Bertilac de Odeser, or something like that. I'm called in this land, comma, through the might of Morgan Le Fay, comma, who dwells in my house, and her erudite arts, period. Right. By Craftswell learned, the masteries of Merlin, many has she taken. 
But whether many refers to men or something else is kind of unclear. Yeah, I think our editor, I'm reading from the James Winnie Broadview translation. Yep. And so she he glosses it as um, she has acquired many of Merlin's occult powers. But it could well be in the Middle English that she's taken many men or many... That's knights. right. That's right. Hmm. That's right. Yeah, I mean, you can say many with men understood, and that's not a problem. But um, And since Bertilak is talking about himself being in the power of Morgan, perhaps yeah. he means there are many other men in Morgan's power as well. Right. Maybe even Gawain. <laughs> Perhaps most of all, Gawain, right? <laughs> because after all, she's his aunt. Right. Which he doesn't seem to have recognized. No, and he rides away without going back to see her. No. No, in fact, when, when Bertilak invites him to come back and spend the evening, or even longer, he just says no. <laughs> just, yeah. That's it. No. <laughs> no, he leaves. not right persuasion yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> he by no wise. He wouldn't do right. it for any reason. So. Yeah. And, you know, Middle English, the more negatives you have, the more emphatic you are. Right. right. <laughs> yeah, so, again, this might be teenagerish. No, I'm not going to, you know, go to that. But but you get this sense that there's something that lies behind it. If Gawain knows who Morgan is, um, he's not going to. Well, it, it could be taken two ways. Either he knows the backstory and he's not going to go visit her, or he's still so upset about this whole um, trick that has been played on him that he's just getting out of there. Yeah, I think that one of his problems is that his identity has been constructed around that of King Arthur. Right. Um, early in the poem, when he asks for the privilege of of, um, of fighting the Green Knight, he says, "You know, it's it's your blood alone that gives me my worth." And the problem is now he's realized that it's not just Arthur's blood that's going through his veins. Hers is there, too, in a sense, because she's Arthur's sister. Right. So um, I think he's, he's, there are probably many reasons why he refuses to go back. One of them is just he doesn't want to be played with anymore. I guess so. <laughs> They've been jerking him around for four days, five days now. So I think he'd like to just go. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, and he's shamed. Right. Um, because he's, you know, he's cheated on his agreement with the Green Knight. And, and his honor has been tarnished. You no, know, Exactly. Only the Green Knight knows it. Nobody else knows it. But perhaps he doesn't want to be shown off as a kind of trophy back at Bertilak's castle um, at, at the end of the day. So he'd just rather leave uh, and not go through that. Well, and presumably the lady Bertilak, or like Bertilak's wife would know that at least that his honor's been tarnished. And so maybe he doesn't. And, you know, to find out <laughs> that the woman who was flirting with you has been set up by her husband. Right. Right. That can't feel good either. No, he can't confront her either because she's been playing with him for three days and um, she never really intended to sleep with him in the first place. Yeah. Uh, we would guess, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, who knows? <laughs> that's that We don't know, really. But, um, but yeah. I suspect that because in the very first meeting that they have, she knows what's bothering him. It's about line 1284. Okay. This, now I've got my own translation that I'm hoping to to um, to get published someday. So this is my translation. Okay. Even if I were the winsomest woman, she thought, little thinks he of love for the loss that he seeks so soon. 
So she knows what what's going on in his mind. And um, so my guess is that she doesn't really expect him to sleep with her. So she's toying with him. But so much of the poem's criticism goes back to um, sources and analogs, you know, that whole school of thought where right. if, you know, if you have this, this, you could have 27 romances in which the host sends his wife to have sex with the guest. Yeah. And so you might assume, therefore, that if this is example number 28, that it must be the same thing. Right. Um, I don't buy that. No, because the, well, because each, I mean, the poet, like, it could be the poet knowing that tradition and messing with it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I want to I want to find out which one this is. Is that I don't think this is a textbook example of that convention at all. I right. think this is this is the exception. Well, that's the exception in so many. Uh, like Sir Gawain is the exception in so many. Yeah. Cases. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So to get back to your original comment, no, he does not want to go back there. He's going to go home. But he's he's encountered this Green Knight alone out there. Uh, by the Green Chapel, nobody else in the world knows what he's been through, and yet he's he goes back to King Arthur's court and he tells everybody the story. Right. Why? <laughs> Why does he do that? Why doesn't he just keep it to himself? And I think the answer is because it's for the same reason that he went looking for the Green Knight in the first place. He didn't really have to do that, did he? If he had gone off spent a couple of days on vacation someplace, you and know, then, and then yeah. gone back home and said, oh, guess what? Um, he didn't hurt me. <laughs> Nobody would know. But yeah. he's, or that's he not the said, you know, the directions were not clear enough. Right. Know, wander into the wilderness right. and you'll find me. That's not I, the kind of guy Gawain is. No. Gawain's the, Gawain's the kind of guy who's going to keep his promises. Right. That's why he wears the pentangle on his shield as a symbol of his troth. Yeah, and that's why he's so ashamed when the one time he didn't keep his promise. Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, and you know, there's a big difference between guilt and shame. And Gawain experiences shame publicly in front of the Green Knight, but he internalizes it as guilt. Right. And then he puts himself through even more shame when he goes back to Arthur's court. But like the Green Knight, they forgive him. They're so indulgent and tolerant and, and kind. And they wear it as a badge of honor, right? They all start yes. wearing green girls. Yeah, and they let's all wear one. <laughs> we'll make you feel better. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Well, and the ending of the the Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. I mean, I think of stories. I don't know if you've read The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood or yes, I have. other stories. The the story totally changes based yeah. on the last five pages. <laughs> yes. And Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is a little bit like that. So when you read it the second time through, when you're, you read it backwards, knowing that this is all a plot set up by Morgan Le Fay, I mean, how does that change your reading of the whole story? Well, one thing it does, um, and I'm sure this has happened to you too, is that it forces you to go back and reread it and look for clues. Yeah. And, and when you look for them, you do find them. Right. Um, for example, the the Green Knight um, is has red eyes hmm. when he's in King Arthur's court. That's just in one line, and I think I must have read the poem ten times before I saw that. But red eyes is what we call a fairy symptom or a, a sign that there's fairy magic. Oh, um, interesting. 
you know, in, in fairy literature, especially in Wales, um, you know, the Mabinogion, for example, red eyes means you're a fairy. Right. Uh, so he's been enchanted by a fairy. So that's a clue that, that Morgan Le Fay is, is, is um, involved. And then, of course, when Gawain sees the lady, Bertilak's wife, and she's with this old woman, um, and this old woman ends up sitting at the head table on Christmas Day, there's another clue right there. Right. So, so you know, yeah, it's, you start to realize that we've been moving in this direction all the way through, mm-hmm. but we just didn't catch it because the poem doesn't use dramatic irony. Huh. Um, right. Yeah, so, we're, I mean, we're, we're in, we're just as much in the dark as Gawain is. Yeah. Well, this has been most enjoyable and most fun. And I've learned a lot, both by reading your articles, but also just through conversation with you. So well, it's been a lot of fun for me, too. I hope to meet you in person someday. I hope we do get to meet in person someday. So thanks so much, Kathy. This has been a lot of fun for me. You've been listening to Eavesdropping on Arthurians with Kathy Causey. Join me next time to eavesdrop on another chat about a different but equally fascinating story about Arthur. Our music is Mordred's Lullaby by Heather Dale. You can download it for free from heatherdale.com.